in some ways singing what we studied in Sunday school there. Hope y'all can make it um, next week as, well, no, I'm about to say it wrong. Next week we do communion and fellowship meal, no 915 classes. Two weeks from today we resume our 915 classes. Hope, hope you can make it to that. Turn back to Romans with me. Romans chapter 2. I want to say, and, and uh, I realize this is a heavy section because what Paul is doing in this section from 118 to 320 is establishing the universal need of the gospel. He's establishing universal guilt that not only are the pagans and Gentiles and people who are not part of the Old Testament covenant community, not only are they sinful and guilty, but the Jewish people as well need the same gospel. None of them either has fulfilled the law and can provide their own righteousness. And it's important for us to work through the bad news as much as it is the good news. For our own soul and for our ability to talk to others about uh, the dilemma that they might find themselves in. Why do we need a gospel? Why do we need a savior? Why, why should we turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the, the old word, we are lost and need a savior. We are under sin, we are under condemnation, therefore, and we need someone to save us because we can't save ourselves. A lot of people in the world are depending upon their own performance for the acceptance from God, and so that rug needs to be pulled out from under. A lot are not even concerned about it and going their own way. They need the gospel too. So there's a lot of religious people and a lot of non-religious people who, even in our current day, need to hear this so that they see their need for a Savior. We're in chapter 2. We're studying through Romans. Like I said, this section is about universal needs, so it's, it's what we might call the bad news or the, the news that makes the gospel necessary, sin and judgment. Uh, we will get to chapter 3. I know this can be challenging to walk through. I will just say this. This is not the only thing in Romans that's going to challenge you. Buckle up. Be with it. If you, don't, if you have things you hear you don't understand, ask questions, dig in. Uh, we're all on the way. We're all in different places, and that's okay. That's okay. We're all disciples of Christ who are, who are and should be learning new things every day. But I'm going to read from chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. In the message, we'll look at verses 12 to 16. I'm going to read those in context. As Paul turns his guns from the Gentiles to the Jews... We'll pick it up in uh, chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being that does evil. For the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all have sinned, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse, uh, even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we feel our weakness this morning, so we pray for your help. I pray for your help to preach your word. Help me to preach it in truth and accuracy, Lord with Christ at the center. Help us to hear it as the Word of God, with joy, in order to understand it and live in its light. Apply it to our hearts, Lord. May we not be the same when we leave as we were when we came in. May we grow in Your grace. So, Lord, help us. Bless the preaching and the hearing of the Word. Send forth Your Word and accomplish all of Your purpose. Lift high Your Son. And draw all people to yourself. We give you the praise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. R.C. Sproul was fam- uh, had a question that he, was, he liked to ask on occasion. Because it's an important question and because it's a question that people tend to have. And it goes something like this. What happens to the innocent native deep dark jungle who's never heard the gospel when he dies? And R.C. said, that that person goes straight to heaven. They don't need the gospel when they die. What's the problem with that question? What happens to the innocent native? Is there any such thing as an innocent person on the face of the earth? And what Paul is showing in this section, what Paul is showing in this larger section in in Romans, is that there are no one, there's no one that gets a pass. There's no one who is innocent. The people are not condemned if they're condemned because they didn't hear the gospel. Right? They're condemned if they're condemned because of their own sin and rejection of the light that God has given, given. For some reason, we do want to give some people a pass. Say they've never heard the gospel. But they won't be judged on that basis. They'll be judged based on whether or not they have responded to God and His revelation with obedience. Do you embrace this? No one deserves to hear the gospel. No one deserves to hear the gospel. Now we want all people to hear it, and God in His grace tells us to take it to all people, and if there are people who haven't heard it, a lot of that fault is ours as a church. We haven't gone. 
But nobody deserves to hear it. If, it. if we deserve it, it's not grace and mercy. Christ ran toward His enemies to save them. But all people, Jew and Gentile, see, Jews don't get a pass just because they have the law. We'll see that here. All people, Jew and Gentile, must answer to God for their sin and hopefully will turn to God and receive His Savior. See, we know ahead of time, like last week when it says, those who in continuance of well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality. We know that as we get on into chapter 3, there's none good. There's not one who does that. There's not one who can save themselves. We have a little bit of that flavor in this text as well. But see, whereas, whereas last week our, or I was trying to expand upon what it, Corey had mentioned in his sermon, which is the last part of verse 5, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. So the, try to describe from verses 6 to 10 the righteous judgment and the fact that God shows no partiality. That connects these two sections there. And so there will be a righteous judgment. And I went ahead and cheated last week and told you it would be by a righteous standard. And this section is about the righteous standard of God's judgment. It's very interesting. Sometimes you get a clue to the meaning of a section when you just look at the words used. And if you look at this section, if you look at just at verses 12 to 16, you look at that little section, the law is used ten times. So obviously that's trying to communicate something to us. The, the law is being repeated. The law is the standard of God's judgment. The law is what the Jews had in written form in the Torah. But that does not mean that the others do not have it in any form. And that's what we'll see today. So today we're looking at a righteous standard, which is God's standard of judgment. And the main point is God judges by His own perfect standard, His moral law, and all have access to it. God judges by His own perfect standard, His law, and all have access to it. Look first, the law is God's righteous standard. Look in verses 12 and 13 here. He's connecting with what's uh, gone before. He's continuing to talk about God's righteous judgment and the fact that it will, be, it will be according to works, previous section, and our works will be examined in light of this standard, the law, and we'll see that God shows no partiality. For verse 11, he's still expanding upon the fact that God will not be partial to the Jews just because they're Jews and just because they have the written revelation of God. That won't get them to heaven or reconciliation with God, that we will be judged by His standard or His law. So look at it again. For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Notice, even though they don't have the written law, when he says without the law, he's talking about the written law. They still have sinned and they still will perish even though they don't have the written law. And the Jew would say yes to that. He would have been like with chapter 1. Oh, get them, Paul. Tell those, tell those Gentiles that they're sinful. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, those who have the written law, the written revelation of God, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. First and foremost, the law is the standard of sin for all. So he's stating the, the standard and showing that it applies to the Jew first, he likes to say, and then the Gentile. There's no people group 
who gets a pass. Those who have the written law and those who don't. Those who sin without the law and those who sin under the law, they will all be judged by God's moral law and perish, it's implied. The important point here is, see, the Jews thought they got a pass because they were Abraham's descendants. They were part of the Old Testament covenant community by, by physio, physical lineage. They were born into it, right? And so they had the law, they had the temple, they had the priesthood, so surely they're good, right? Well, they had a lot of privilege, which brings a lot more responsibility. But those things don't save us. Because God says the problem is sin. What do you do with your sin? All who sin shall perish. You could put it that way. Those who don't have the written law and those who do, but all who sin will perish. And that's kind of, we get that flavor when we go on into chapter 3, Romans 3.22. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Apart from Christ, all Jews have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Apart from Christ, all Gentiles have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Apart from Christ, everyone will perish. And everyone needs a Savior. So he's saying that in, in a sense in verse 12. And he's, he's pointing out that the law will be the standard. And how do we know when he says in the first part of verse 12, all who have sinned. That's important to be able to define that little three-letter word, isn't it? What is sin? How do we understand what sin is? How do we know what sin is? Another way that Scripture speaks of sin is lawlessness, which gives us a hint. So if we're, if we're being lawless then we're not, we're not going by what God's law says. We're not honoring Him and honoring it and obeying it. We're acting in not a lawful way, but a lawless way. And that's exactly what Jesus, the end of the verse that we're memorizing in, in Matthew chapter 7, He describes their life. The reason He said, I never knew you, for you practiced lawlessness. Your, sin, your life was about sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism number 14 asks and answers this question. What is sin? Answer. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Any lack of conformity to it or transgression of it. Any lack of conformity. Now listen to me. In thought. Because our words and deeds flow from our thoughts, right? So if we're not measuring, if we're not always thinking exactly the right thing as God defines it, then that's sin. I mean, Jesus applied the commandment of adultery to our thought life, right? And certainly then our words and our deeds. If we're not perfect in thought, word, and deed, there's a lack of conformity to the law, and therefore we have sinned and will perish, Paul says in verse 12. James is saying something similar to Paul. See, people see James and Paul in conflict. They're not in conflict. You just have to understand what each one of them is saying. But James in chapter 2 verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You keep everything else but fail in one point, you've become guilty of all. You've broken it. I mean, think of a chain. You might have a chain of ten links. And all it takes to break the chain is to break what? One link. And it's broken. Whoever keeps the whole law 
and fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And I would tell you, if we rightly understand the law, if you, if you rightly understand the Ten Commandments, if you rightly understand God's commandment to have no other gods before Him, you know you've failed right there. Right? We've sought satisfaction and pleasure and joy in many other things other than God. Right? We have not worshipped His way. We've dishonored His name. We have not always prioritized Him on the Lord's day when we were able to. You know, and then murder and adultery and stealing and false witness and covetousness. We've, we have done a lot of those things in our heart, though we've never said them or spoken them. But we've all fallen short of God's law. And we'll get to it in chapter 3 where Paul says, There's none righteous, no, not one. None has done good. All have gone astray. All have gone their own way. See, that's where he's driving us to. Look at verse 13. The law is the standard for all. We've seen that kind of already. But he, he, he says it's not enough to hear the law. This is how the standard is applied. We have a standard. The law, the law in verse 12. This is how it's applied. Because our greatest need is to be justified before God. What does that mean? To be declared righteous by God. To be accepted by Him as righteous. To be reconciled to Him. A lot of different ways we talk about that. But look at verse 13. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. See, it's not those who have the written revelation from God, and maybe they even prioritize hearing it or reading it. But that doesn't make us right with God. Think about working out. Suppose you, and I've used this illustration before, but suppose you read 10 books on the best way to work out in the gym. Will that make you in shape? No, probably hurt your head after a while. But no, you won't, you won't begin to get in shape until you actually take what you've learned from that book and go into the gym and start moving heavy stuff around. We, don't, we never grow usually when we're comfortable. We will grow most under stress. See, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, although that is a great privilege. Think about that. The Jewish, and he'll talk about that later, the Jewish, were, Jewish people were greatly privileged to have the oracles of God, to have the written revelation of God, to have the, the whole system. They were greatly privileged. And they tried to sort of just lean on their privilege. That's why John the Baptist confronted the Pharisees. God's able to raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. We cannot be made right with God by simply hearing His Word and simply reading His Word. I read it all the time. Good. It's a good thing. Is it shaping your life? It's not the hearers who are righteous before God, who are counted righteous in God's court. Now look, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Again, to be justified is to be in God's courtroom and have Him declare you righteous and therefore acceptable to Him. So Paul says it's not enough to hear the law. If you're going to be justified by God on the basis of, of the law, you're going to have to keep it. The doer, he's not saying that there ever will be a person who will do this and be saved. 
Because at the end of his argument, he says no one does it. So I've said that enough. I won't spend much time on that. But the doer of the law will be justified. If you would be righteous on your own, you must have kept God's law from the time you were born until now in thought, in word, and in deed. Never a selfish action. Kids, you never ever said, Mine! Adults just do that differently, but we still do it. No. See, again, I quoted this in the last sermon, but I'll bring it back up. Leviticus 18.5. If you would live by the law, you must do the law. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, and if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. But go read verse 10. Go read verse 23. None good. None who does good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, he's setting forth God's perfect standard. He's setting forth the law as that mirror, as that examiner, that we can look into that mirror to see if we measure up. And if we're seeing in that mirror rightly, we're going to see that we don't measure up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's never been one who has lived who has been a perfect and complete doer of the law and therefore was declared righteousness. Righteous. But one. There was one who did that. There was one who was born under his own law to fulfill all righteousness. Y'all heard that, right? Mine. Thank you for that confirmation. <laughs> he was born under his own law. He came at just the right time. And he, like he told John the Baptist, he fulfilled all righteousness. He is the only one of whom the Father would say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Christ came. He's the only one who ever has done this. And see, I can't just preach the bad news without giving you the gospel. You would eventually die in depression. I have to point out that there has been one and only one. There's one who's been a doer of the law and it's not you. It is Jesus. Why did Christ come? Why was He born in a manger? Why did he live for all of that time before he died on the cross? Well, he did it to fulfill all righteousness. He fulfilled the law that we had broken. And then he took our guilt upon himself and he died for our sins, Paul says. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was buried and he was raised the third day. And the resurrection proves that Jesus was the doer of the law. That Jesus was who he said he was. That he was the only begotten Son of God. He was the only Savior of the world. And that he offers that salvation to those who will trust in him. See, if you trust in your own doing, you will be dying. And I'm talking about spiritual death there. We all physically die because sin entered the world through Adam. Unless Christ comes back before then. But Christ has come to deliver us from the condemnation that we deserve because we haven't been doers of His law. Will you have Christ? 
Turn and trust in Christ. Listen, if, you've turned, if you are trusting in Jesus, all of your sin is forgiven. All of your failure washed away. His perfect righteousness credited to your account. You're in union with Him through faith and have been forgiven and adopted into God's family. You've been justified in Christ. He has declared you righteousness only on the basis of the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to you. But it is yours as a free gift. You are God's child now. And he will take you all the way home. Jews who had the law and were not doers could repent and trust in the Messiah and be saved. Now Paul's already said in verse 12, all who've sinned without the law will perish without the law and all who've sinned under it will be judged by it because it's not the hearers but the doers who are justified. So that you can see how it's kind of on the face of it how that would be right for the Jew because the Jew had the written revelation of God, right? God had given them the Torah. But you might be wondering, how is that just for the Gentile who didn't have the law? Well, Paul comes back to it. And this is where my second point comes from. All have access to God's righteous standard. He comes back to the Gentiles now and he says, For when Gentiles, now watch, who do not have the law, that means the written law, when Gentiles who do not have the written law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the written law. And you can get confused bouncing around with the law if you're not careful. Gentiles don't have the written law, but he's saying you can see by their actions that they sometimes do things that are in line with the law and that the law requires. Why is that happening? Why is that happening? See, our tendency would be able to say they do not have a Bible, so they're excused, right? No, they're judged by God's standard. How is that fair? Well, look in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. They show that the law... See, he's taking us back to creation here. Man was created in the image of God. And part of what that meant was God's law was written on his heart. God's moral requirements were given to the creature, given to the person when we were created. It takes us all the way back there. Created man with an informed conscience, knowledge of God's moral will. It was marred by the fall into sin, yes, and by our own actual sin. And we can sear our conscience, but it's still there. And on the day of judgment, the the thoughts will even be able to be brought forward as evidence to say, see, you knew murder was wrong. I mean, cultures who've never heard of a Bible know that murder is wrong and murder is outlawed in in most places. Not all because of the effects of sin and, and searing of the conscience and resistance to the truth. You knew stealing was wrong. You knew you fill in the blank was wrong. How did you know? Because the law was written on your heart. See, this is what I'm saying. The Gentiles have access to the same moral requirement because that sometimes called natural law is written on our hearts as part of being created in the image of God and the conscience bears witness to it. David Van Drunen says this way, God holds all people accountable before His judgment, whether they've heard the Scriptures or not. And He justifies justly even those who haven't because He judges them on the basis of the universal natural law, which they know by virtue of being human 
and living this world. And I said justify. I said that wrong. He judges justly, even those who haven't had the written law because it was written on their hearts. See, the Jews have it written. The Gentiles didn't have it written. But it, it was part of creation to have that moral code, if you will, impressed or imprinted upon the nature so that no one is without excuse. Because Psalm 19, that light goes to every, every part of the globe. No one in the deepest, darkest jungle will ever be able to say, I didn't know, because their conscience will testify that the light that they had, they rejected. See, lost man's nature is to suppress the truth. We've already seen that in chapter 1. To reject what they know about God. To go their own way. And idolatry, various forms of idolatry are simply resistance to God. See, God judges impartially, verse 11. The Jews don't get a pass because they had the written revelation. And the Gentiles don't get a pass because they didn't have the written revelation. But each of them has the law, the moral code, not only on paper or parchment, but on their hearts. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts even accuse or excuse them. And yes, certainly throughout our lives we have these thoughts and pangs of guilt and pangs of conscience when we know something's wrong and we keep doing it and we sort of sear over that. But then in the day of judgment, it says it will be brought forward. Paul says, he finishes this way, gospel preaching, and I just said this, I want to say this really quickly. Gospel preaching includes preaching God's righteous standard because look what Paul says. After he's gone through all this, he says, on the, that day when, according to my gospel, According to the gospel he had received, according to the gospel he preached, his preaching included the bad news as well as the good news. Righteous judgment in all of our failure, so that then the good news in Christ makes sense. He says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God has appointed a man to be the judge, and he's given proof of that by raising him from the dead the end of chapter 17. And one day we will all stand before him. If we're Christians, it will be proven that our lives demonstrate the fact that we've turned to Christ. Our works will validate that fact. If we're not, we will be held responsible to whether or not we have been a doer of the law and fulfilled it perfectly in order to make ourselves right with God, and all of us will fail at that outside of Christ. But think about that. God will judge everyone's secrets. Did you know you have no secrets? Now, you might have secrets from me or from your mom and dad or from your brother or sister or neighbor, but you don't have any secrets from God. God sees right into the depths of your heart. Psalm 139. Go read that. He knows our thoughts before we think them, our words before we say them, our deeds before we do them. All of our days were written in his book before that. He's completely sovereign. He completely knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And that will be brought to bear on the day when God judges our secrets. Jew and Gentile will be judged impartially by one righteous moral standard 
which is God's holy law. So the, 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 the righteous judgment being revealed, we saw how that was described as a judgment of works in, in, in 6 to 11, and then it'll be according to his law, and then he really sort of turns that on the Jews as, as we go forward from 17 following. But I want to end today just giving you a few points of application and two illustrations. What we've said is Gentiles who don't have God's written revelation are held accountable to God. And I want to give you an illustration of that being true. And then I'm going to give you an illustration of Jews who do have the written revelation of God being held accountable to do it. And i got two illustrations for you. They both come from Scripture. The first are the Amorites. And if you go, if you go read in chapter 15 of Genesis, as God is in the process of making covenant with Abraham and telling Abraham what will happen to his descendants over the next hundreds of years. He says this in verse 16 of Abraham's descendants. He says, And they shall come back here to the land of Canaan, the promised land. He said, They shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why is it going to take so long? Now watch what this says. The iniquity or the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now the Amorites were not Jewish. They would had no idea of the written revelation of God. They did not have his law. Certainly, you know, neither did Abram at that point. But these are a, a, a pagan Gentile people that God is still holding accountable because he says their sin is not yet complete. He's being patient. And he was patient with them for generations. But they were responsible to their creator to love him and live for him and obey what he had commanded them, even if it was only written on their heart. Who were the Amorites? Well, they're, obviously they're Gentiles. In the Old Testament, in general, it, it speaks of inhabitants of Palestine. Uh, it, can, it can speak more specifically of those in the hill country of Palestine in, in various times. But just these are people who were living in what would be the promised land. And God is saying they will be removed, but not yet, because their iniquity is not yet complete. See how patient he was. See, but they would eventually be judged and removed from the land. And people get all upset with things in, in Judges and Joshua and other places where God tells Israel, he uses Israel as an instrument of judgment while at the same time fulfilling his promise and blessing them with a land. But these people who were in the land deserved to be a long time ago judged and removed. They were not innocent people. And if you go read the history, eventually their sin is complete. But how are they described? Well, they're very idolatrous people. They were, they were uh, resisting worshiping the true and living God. They were very sexually immoral, even in religious ways. I'm not going to go into detail on that. They sacrificed children and adults in their, quote, service to their God. These are people that when they were building a new house would sacrifice a baby and put the corpse in the foundation so that the gods would bless the house. So be careful before you defend these people and say that they didn't need to be routed out. God was very patient with them, but this is an illustration of Gentiles who didn't have written law, but God held them accountable to what they knew in their heart as being created in the image of God, that there was a God, and that a lot of these things were wrong. He was patient, but eventually... Think about that. 
idolatry, violence, sexual immorality, sacrificing children. I'm not quoting yesterday's newspaper, but it sounds like it, right? I just have a question for you. When will the USA's sin be complete? It will be. I pray for revival and repentance. We, don't need new and, we do need new and better politicians, but that won't answer the question. What we need is people with a new and better heart who will repent and turn from a lot of these things to avert God's judgment. But that sounds like what we're describing is America right there. And I ask you, when will his patience run out? Well, that's an example of Gentile people who God held accountable to the law that was written on their hearts. What about Israel, God's Old Testament covenant people who he brought into the promised land? They were his people that he rescued and redeemed out of Egypt and brought them into a land they didn't deserve. They had God's written law. They had prophets, priests, and kings. They slowly became like the nation. Idolatry, sexual immorality, child sacrifice. I mean, didn't you love hearing God's heart in Psalm 81? Oh, that my people would listen to me. And I would provide them with the best. But they didn't. Just like we didn't. But what happened to Israel eventually? Well, judgment and wrath and destruction and exile. Just the same thing that happened to the people they replaced. In 720, uh, the northern kingdom goes into captivity. Right? But did the southern kingdom get it? No. In 586, the southern kingdom goes into captivity. The temple is destroyed. All of these things. God judged both impartially. He judged the Jews who had His law and didn't keep it. He judged the Gentiles who had His law in their hearts and didn't keep it. One was natural law. The other was written law. But it's the same standard with the same outcome. The Jews in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, how were they generally characterized? Not that there were no righteous people in the mix, right? But generally they were characterized as not righteous. They had condemned God's Son. They had killed a lot of His prophets and followers. The ones who tried to reach them. And judgment would come on Israel is after this was written. Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 A.D. The temple would be destroyed. The city would be destroyed. They would be removed. Why? Because God is holy. And He takes His law serious. And those who have it in the heart, especially those who have it in written form, are accountable to Him and accountable to it. He's an impartial judge who will judge with righteous standard, which is His law, which everybody has access to, either through written or through heart. And if the Gentiles do not have any excuse for disobeying God's law, how much more the Jews who had it in written form. And though they would get mad at Paul and stop their ears and all these things, this was the truth of God. Jesus had told them, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And you can see that a lot of them perished. So a couple of illustrations. Let me ask, let me just turn the guns on us as I close. How about you? What about you? Children, what about you? Adults, what about you? Youth, what about you? Have you realized how far short you fall of God's glory? How far short you fall of keeping 
His law. How you have sinned and fall short of what is required and how much you need a Savior. Have you realized that? Has God convicted you of your sin such that you were grieved over it and hated it and worked repentance in your heart such that you turned from it to God and received Christ as your Savior? Has that happened in you? There are no shortcuts. There are no grading on the curve. There's no way to be saved other than trusting in Jesus. You cannot save yourself. Please hear Paul. Please hear God who inspired this word through Paul. Please hear me. Second question. Those of us who know him, are you willing to tell others how far short they fall? Are you willing to be a gospel witness is what I'm asking. Are you willing to tell others how far short they fall of achieving righteousness before God? How much they need a Savior? How can we receive His grace and not pass that along? We have the answer to these difficult verses. And I, I gave it to you in the middle with Christ. He's the one who has done the law, who is righteous, and who offers that salvation to us through faith so that we too are justified. And thirdly, are you fully consciously rested in Christ and not in your own performance? Because we'll receive the gospel and then go back in our daily lives to you know, we'll get back on that little hamster wheel and think if we do real good, God will love us more. The days we're doing good, He loves us more. The days we're doing bad, He loves us less. No, are you rested in your soul in Christ? What do you mean? Are you trusting in Christ that His perfect righteousness is credited to your account, that before God you are righteous as the Son of God is, and that all of your sin has been washed away by His sacrifice? He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised the third day that we might have salvation in Him, be fully forgiven, clothed in His righteousness, adopted into God's family, we're justified before that are declared righteous and being grown in grace every day that we live. In other words, are you fully convinced that Christ is your righteousness? If you are not, you have none. You either have Him and your, His righteousness as your righteousness or you have none. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. Now watch this. And the beauty of God's sovereignty and the beauty of His salvation and the beauty that it is due to His credit that we're in Christ. Watch this and how he describes Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Rest in His grace and boast in Him who don't know Him. Boast of Him to those who don't know Him that He will save them as well. Little question. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? If your answer begins, well, well, I've done... See, it's like the, when you're memorizing the verses, watch what their answer is. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we do this? If your answer is, I've been a good kid. I obey my parents. I go to Sunday school. I read my Bible. You're looking in the wrong place. 
God won't let you in heaven because of what you do. In fact, what we do is the problem. He would only let us into heaven because of His beloved Son in whom He's well pleased and He's worked in us faith in Him. Your answer should, not, should be not that I have been good, but that Jesus has been good for me and has sacrificed Himself for me. See, just like there'll be no innocent natives deep in the jungle somewhere, there are no innocent people anywhere on earth. All have sinned and will be judged by God's perfect righteous standard, His law. So all need the gracious salvation offered in Christ. So let's be sure we are rested in Him ourselves and then let us strap on boldness as our shoes and go tell others how they too can be graciously made right with this God. Really understanding this will help you see why Paul would say this. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. I pray for those who don't know you. Maybe I've made them angry this morning. That's better than no response. But I pray that you'd work humility and confession and contrition such that they would turn in repentance from their sin and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting no confidence in the flesh, but all confidence in Jesus. And those of us who know you, Lord, keep us from reverting to legalism and seeing our acceptance as in any way based on what we do. Help us to embrace your grace and let it in our hearts produce that love and gratitude that will cause us then to want to grow in living for you because we love you. May the Spirit continue to work repentance and faith in our hearts. May the Spirit work repentance and faith in those who don't know you. May you save and sanctify your people. We give you praise honor and glory this morning and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me. Let's turn and, and sing Hallelujah, my Redeemer. Boy, this should really point us toward our Savior to rejoice and rest in Him.